0: All right, we're going to shift gears from that prayer to talk about love stories. Yeah, there have been countless books, songs, articles, movies, TV shows, short movies about the idea of love. Now, you may not love romantic comedies or dramatic romances, or whatever you want to call it, but to some degree, we probably all appreciate or have appreciated in our lives a good love story. Something that kind of brings up, in narrative form, this ideal that we have for what love can be. So there might be several ideas that come to your mind when you think of love stories. Ideas like happily ever after, I mean, that's kind of something that we tie to these love stories, that love is able to overcome, all these things. So I thought just as a point of interest this morning, we would look back at some of uh, culture's favorite love stories of all time. Because there's lots of good ones to choose from, and and they'll kind of put us in the mood uh, for the story that we have today. So for example, one of the most famous love stories of all time is Romeo and Juliet. Two crazy kids who fall in love and have several obstacles to overcome. Their families hate each other, and then a member of his family kills a member of her family, which is not so great. They conceive an elaborate plan to escape their families and be together, which is kind of romantic, until it fails, and they both end up killing themselves minutes apart. Maybe that's a bad example. Maybe that's a bad example. Let's, let's talk about another one. Um, an affair to remember. Right? It's a, it's a love story? No? Who knows an affair to remember? Raise your hand. Cary Grant, Deborah Carr. Come on, people! I'm younger than all y'all. Two people met aboard a cruise ship and established a friendship. And they got to be such good friends that at one of the stops on the cruise... He takes her to go see his grandmother, and the grandmother says, Dude, she totally said that, by the way, dude, this is the one. So they go back on the boat, and they realize that they had deeper feelings for one another, they were, though they were both in relationships with other people. It's a little shady, I know, but let's just roll with it, because after all, love They agreed to meet at the top of the Empire State Building six months later when they had ended their relationships. So they're on their way. He's already there waiting and she is on her way. And she's so excited and she gets hit by a taxi. Gets hit by a taxi and he's waiting up there. He waits until midnight and she never shows up. She ends up being paralyzed from the waist down but she's too proud to tell him about what happened. And they even see each other when they're out at the theater, but she's sitting down, so he doesn't know that she's paralyzed. His grandmother died and left a shawl for his that would be for his love, so he decided to pay a surprise visit to her on Christmas Eve, and he discovered that she was actually paralyzed, and then they hugged and she said, someday I may walk again. Okay, maybe this is another poor example. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. let's talk about one more. How about, I mean, it's called Love Story. What's, what? This one has to be good. Two people from different backgrounds met and fell in love. Oh no, (laughs) that sounds ominous. (laughs) He left his wealthy family to marry her. Things were tough, but they stuck with one another. And then and life was looking up and he graduated from like Harvard Law School, but then she was diagnosed with a terminal disease. Okay, that's it. I'm done <laughs> with trying to talk about love stories. Can't we write a love story that doesn't involve some sort of carnage, injury, death, or just outright pain? Why is it that we have to tie all of those things into love. I'm starting to wonder what people mean when they tell me they love me. That's <laughs> right. Kathy's going to walk up to me immediately after church and tell me that she loves me. You watch. Can we just not imagine the scenario or have we recognized on some level that this is how life is? I mean, while we might love the happily ever after, we also hate the people who get the (laughs) happily ever after, right? Because we know that life is not always like that. And so these are three profound cultural expressions of what love really is. And in each of them, they involve misery. This morning we are going to talk about about family, marriage, and children, and if we have learned anything throughout the Jacob story, we know that talking about family, marriage, and children is a recipe for trouble, because Jacob's whole life is a recipe for trouble. In order to understand this story, though, we have to understand some of the cultural norms at the time because if you just jump into the story and read it through, you are going to get to the end and say, Huh? So marriage was something different at the time than what we understand it to be now. First off, it was common for men, especially powerful men, who had households and flocks and property, it was common for them to have more than one wife. That was typical. And in fact, not only would they have more than one wife, but they would often have concubines who were the servants of either someone in their household or their wives that were then given to them to help the family grow larger. This happened with Abraham and his family. When Sarah couldn't get pregnant, she gave Abraham her her handmaiden, Hagar, and Hagar had Ishmael. Uh, Esau, in this story, had no fewer than three wives. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, it doesn't say that I could find, that he has more than one wife, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if he did. After all, his son has three, so there has to be something in there that helped him understand that. One of the highest priorities of any marriage was to have children, specifically male heirs, who would carry on for the family. Now, this is where things get a little bit muddy for us. We see in these stories of Abraham, of Isaac, and now in Jacob, that there were legitimate heirs to the blessing that God had given. Those heirs were Isaac and not Ishmael, and Jacob and not Esau. So Ishmael and Esau fall into a secondary category, which would be other children of the main relationships that would also be heirs but not the same kind of heir as the firstborn or the chosen child. And then there were what I like to call the other other children who were not even named in a lot of circumstances but would have received at least part of the inheritance of anything at all. And it's interesting when you get to, if you look at the passages at the end of Abraham's life He had more concubines than are even listed in the story who gave him other children, which we don't know who they are. The goal was to create a prosperous family with many heirs so the family would ultimately become a people unto themselves. And we can't forget that within this narrative, there is supposed to be just that, a nation that comes from this line. So welcome, friends, to one of my least favorite sections of the story of Jacob, and that's saying something. It's a story about, as I said, family, marriage, and children. Therefore, it is filled with personal hurt, jealousy, bitterness, anger, and sorrow, which would seem, on our terms, to make it a true love story. (laughs) When we last left Jacob, he had run away from home. His parents had sent him to Padan Aram, where his uncle Laban lived. And he was sent with the blessing of both Rebekah and Isaac, both to protect him from Esau and with the hope that he would find a wife who was not a Canaanite. So he left, and on his way to his uncle Laban's, In the middle of nowhere, he had his first significant personal encounter with God. And God promised him that he would be with Jacob, that he would watch over him, that he would bring him back, and he would not rest until all of these things were accomplished. And Jacob realized in this moment that God was not only the giver of promises, but he is the keeper of promises. And he pledged himself to God, saying, God, as long as you hold up your end of the deal, I will hold up mine. I mean, he's still Jacob, after all. And afterwards, after this moment, when he realized that God had, had been with him, when he realized that ground, that unnamed place was holy ground, he left and went on his way to Laban. Now, if you've been following this story, there might be some questions that come to your mind. Uh, The first of all being, how different is Jacob after this God encounter? Is this the point where he turns his life around and becomes the hero we want him to be? Is this the point where he begins to reap the benefits of being God's chosen and life gets easier for him? Will the story finally take the shape that we want it to and things will start to fall in line with the happily ever after that we kind of want from this kind of narrative? Um, not so much. Jacob finally arrived at the home of his uncle Laban, and as he approached, he saw some shepherds by a well watering some sheep. And he asked them if they knew Laban, and they said yes, and oh, by the way, here comes his daughter. And Rachel, Laban's daughter, approached with some of the sheep from the household, and he rolled the stone off of the well and and helped her water the sheep, and then she left and and went back and, and told Laban that you know, one of your descendants, the, the, the son, not your descendant, but family is here. You know, the son of your sister. And so Laban ran out to meet Jacob and welcomed him into the family with the proclamation, You are my flesh and blood. And something happens unexpectedly to Jacob, which we have not seen yet. He was so relieved to be with family after wandering through the desert, that he wept right there in front of everybody. So we have to believe at least a little bit that he has been changed by this whole experience, which is good news for him because he becomes a little bit more sympathetic to us. Now, Jacob, um, it looks like things are finally looking up for him. He's, in, he's with family, and he began to work for Laban, settling into the household, and started helping take care of the animals. And his uncle decided that, you know, Jacob shouldn't work for free. After all, he's kind of in charge of some of these things. And so he approached Jacob and said, Jacob, you are family, but I don't want you to just work for free. What is it that you would like? How can I compensate you for this? And he let Jacob name his price. So here's what we see in Genesis chapter 29, verses 16 through 20. If you have your Bibles, uh, this is the area we are going to be in today. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Aww. Both daughters are described physically and sort of underlying that they were attractive women. Uh, it's not known what is, mean, what is meant by Leah having weak eyes. There have been lots of suggestions with one of the corniest being she didn't have that sparkle in her eyes. Rachel, on the other hand, is described as an all-around beauty. A- and Jacob was so in love with her at that moment that he pledged to work seven years for her, which is an incredibly high offer. It really is. It's, it's almost like he had said, I would give anything for her. And so Laban immediately accepted, though he kind of acted like, well, I mean, I guess if, it, if she has to marry someone, it might as well be you. And, and to Jacob, again, the time flew by because he was so in love with her. But there was one complication. Rachel was Laban's younger daughter. And her older sister Leah was unmarried. So, on the wedding night, Laban switched Leah in for Rachel. And Jacob married Leah and then slept with her without realizing it was not her until the next morning. Holy smokes! Jacob, the schemer, the heel grabber, just got played. And we see now that Jacob is around people that are willing to play things like he always has. And he got sucked into it. And to a degree... The stunt that Laban pulled with Leah and Rachel is kind of reminiscent of Jacob dressing up as Esau to get the blessing. The two are kind of similar. And the big question that, of course, sits in my mind is, really, dude, Like, how did you not know that was Leah? How did you not know? So Jacob finds out the next day that it's Leah, And he's a little put out. After all, he had worked seven years to marry Rachel. I said he worked seven years for Rachel. Tell tell your phone. Um, So he confronted his uncle Laban, which and he was. Laban was very matter-of-fact about the whole deal. From uh, verses 26 through 30, Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, and return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. So now, just when things were supposed to be getting better, they got dramatically worse. And when I say dramatically, I do mean drama. There is drama by the handfuls in this story. Jacob had a major beef with Laban, and rightfully so, because Laban not only lied to him, made him marry the wrong daughter, and then basically, what? Stole another seven years from him so that he can marry the daughter that he wanted to marry in the first place. It's 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 ugly. It's, it's as ugly as, you know, Jacob dressing up like a goat so he can pretend to be Esau. I actually think it's more so, primarily because of the number of people that were involved. And yeah, deceiving your blind dad is pretty bad, right? But he's not going to live much longer, so it's okay. No, it's, it's all ugly, And and now this ugliness has been turned on Jacob. And I don't think he's used to this, to being treated or manipulated this way. And so it's a little bit weird to see him be so caught up in something good that gets turned against him so dramatically. But what I really have a hard time with in this story, I mean, I, to a degree, Jacob got something that he had been giving out. So while I, I, I feel for him, it's hard to see him as a victim based on the life that he's lived so far. But what I have a hard time with is what is happening to Leah and Rachel. They were bought and sold like possessions by their father regardless of what they wanted or how they might have felt about it. And Laban, seemingly without any sort of regrets, pits two sisters against each other who might have even been against each other in the family. After all, we know there is some sort of discrepancy between them with Rachel being the more attractive or more desirable one. So Leah has lived with that her whole life and Jacob worked seven years for Rachel, but during that seven years, no one came to marry Leah. No one, that we know of, it's not in the story. So that by the time it gets to the point of marriage, Leah has no prospects, and is then forced to marry someone that she knows does not love her, but instead loves her beautiful younger sister. And then she has what she rightfully should. She's the next to be married off. She gets this young, promising man, but her father gives her a week, really not even a week, but a week of being Jacob's wife before Rachel comes back in. And it's not even an elephant in the room as much as it is a mountain in the room that Leah knew Jacob did not love her. How heartbroken must she have been to see a week later, Jacob marry Rachel and be so happy about it. And now she has to share her husband with her younger sister. And Rachel was used as bait to suck Jacob in and then was used as a bargaining chip to get more out of Jacob, who she knew loved her. And by all indications, she loved him. Then, had to watch Jacob marry the wrong woman. Have you ever thought about where was Rachel when Jacob was marrying Leah? And, and Jacob never noticed that Leah wasn't at the wedding, the first one, that was supposed to be to Rachel. He didn't see Leah across from him. It's not a very pretty picture. And the whole thing went from, oh, this is good, to, oh, this is okay, to nuclear within the passing of just a few short verses. Which leads us to the next part, which is hard to read. I encourage you to go back and read all of it during this week. There is no way to describe the next episode other than it is a birthing contest. And the contest is an effort to win the heart of Jacob away from Rachel. Because Leah knows that everything is stacked against her. So Jacob and his wives began to have children. And I've created a flow chart to help us through this section. Uh, Jed, would you bring the next slide up? There we go. So there's Jacob. And then Jacob married Leah and Rachel, right? Okay. So God, in verses 31 through 35 of chapter 29, saw that Leah was not loved. So in response to Leah not being loved, he gave her four sons. I mean, it's a big deal. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Sound like normal names, right? Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for he has seen my misery. Simeon uh, translates to one who hears, i.e., God has heard my cries. Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. And she actually says in the story of Levi's birth, now at last my husband will become attached to me. And Judah is praise. This time I will praise the Lord. Now, let's put those together. God has seen my misery. God has heard me. Now I have what it takes to be my husband's love. And I will praise God for that. Rachel got jealous. Because while she was loved the most, she could not have children. And Leah had turned into this baby machine that was pumping out these boys. So, in, in chapter 30, verses 1 through 2, this will not be on the screen. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? All right. He introduces something that we might have wanted to gloss over. But it's something that was important. Who was making things happen like they were? Who? God. Not Jacob. We're going to come back to that so rachel gave jacob her servant bilhah to bear children for her any children that billah would have given birth to would have been considered rachel because billah was property to rachel okay so billah the servant of the jealous wife who can't have children is now put in the position of having to give up her own rights which have been taken from her long ago. I mean, she is a servant. And have children for the jealous woman that can't have any. So this is going to turn out great, right? Any children that that she would have had would have been Rachel's. So Jacob slept with her, and she gave Jacob two sons. Dan, which stands for he has vindicated. God has listened to my plea and given me a son. And Naphtali, my struggler, the wrestler, I have had a great struggle with my sister. And now that I have two, and the love of my husband, I win. I win. Leah could not let this go. She was upset that she had stopped giving birth so she gave Jacob her servant Zilpah. Jacob slept with Zilpah and she gave what would have been considered Leah's children two sons. Gad, good fortune, and Asher, I'm so happy because I am winning again. So Reuben, who at this point is now old enough to be out in the fields, he had gone out and he had harvested the mandrake plant. And mandrake was an aphrodisiac and was used to make someone more sexually effective. It was also a poison. And if that's not a lesson, I don't know what is. (laughs) Rachel got word that Reuben had harvested and she asked Leah if she could have some mandrake. Why would Rachel want mandrake? so that she can ultimately have a baby. Leah agreed, but only for a price, from chapter 30, verses 15 through 16. Again, not on the screen. But she said to her, Leah did, wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, (laughs) I'm sorry, Leah, Leah went out to meet him, and she said, You must sleep with me. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. So at this point in the story, Jacob is a sperm donor. And God heard Leah's complaint that she wasn't having more children, and he gave her two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun. Issachar sounds like the Hebrew word for reward. God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. And Zebulun means honor. God has presented me with a precious gift. This time my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. And she also gave birth to a girl named Dinah who becomes important later. Finally, We are told something strange. God remembered Rachel. From chapter 30, verses 22 through 24. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Which she later had, whose name was Benjamin. I think we have those up here. Yes. And thus, Jacob's family was created. What a love story. Now, there's some hard things we have to look at here, really quick, as we. As we bring this to a close. The first question, well the first observation let's just make is that within this family people are not particularly good to one another. Uh, And there are things that are obvious and there are things that are not as obvious. Oddly enough the Names of the children tell us more about the family dynamics than almost anything. And we know that Leah feels unloved. We know that she has been given the gift by God of having not only children, but several male children. We know that Rachel was jealous, even though she had the heart of Jacob. And spent a lot of her life being barren by God's own doing. We see the two sisters pitted directly against one another, fighting over Jacob the whole time. And in Jacob, what you might you know, qualif- or qualify as some sort of like stereotypical male response, seems to either not know or not care about whatever is going on between his wives. So, all of this hurt is expressed through these kids. (laughs) So, where is God in this story? Like, literally, where was he in this story? And there's something that challenges us, our idea about, one, how God works at all and two, about what his role in our lives looks like. Because we have this perception that if God is working in our lives, that things will line up for us. And yet in this story, we see God working throughout the narrative, and it is chaos. Ugly, hurtful, chaos. Now, is God making the chaos happen? No. However, he is, they attribute to him several things that are happening that are not making the situation any easier. So God's hands are not completely clean in this. As Jacob said, it was God who was giving or holding back these children So he was a little bit of an instigator here. And the question that came to my mind is, how could this be the way that God's plan moves forward? Because now I've met these other characters, and I don't like them either. Where's the love? Where's the care? Where is this what what it means to be family? So God, we see, does not steer them out of the conflict. Instead, God is right in the middle of all the conflicts. And he blessed both women with sons and withheld fertility from them at different points throughout the story. Now, interestingly enough, both Levi and Judah come from the line of Leah. So Moses, Aaron, and the kings of Judah all come from the unloved mother's sons. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So even here in this story, when we step back and look at the whole context, God saw injustice. And he stuck up for those like Leah who were not loved. He loved the unloved, but it's important for us to see that he does not create injustice. When we look more closely at the interactions, when does God act on behalf of Leah or Rachel? When they call out to him. When they call out to him. When Rachel gave Jacob Bilha, she does not call out to God. She was jealous. And instead of, as we know through the narrative, it might have happened, to be fair, but in the narrative, she doesn't call out to God. She says, I'm going to correct this by giving Jacob billah. Leah, who has stopped having children, countered that with Zilpah. Right? And it's not until they cried out that God saw them or heard them and acted on their behalf. But we have to understand that God did not fix their humanity. And also, he did not wait for everything to be right and perfect before he moved. God was waiting into the middle of the mess. And we see something that should be encouraging to us in the middle of this is that God used the chaos that was there and these very imperfect people to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Because in a break from what we have seen before, all of these children, all of them, are legitimate heirs to the promise that God had made to Abraham, which is a change in course from what happened with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael, where God said, no, only the this one. This is my way. And you can't take over for me it's going to be here and in this he just breaks that all entirely to where even the children of the servants become tribes of Israel so in this case God worked through the social convention to bring about the end that he had in mind and he was still God through all of this and all of these sons became one of the 12 tribes of Israel, or a part of the tribes. Finally, we see that God indeed kept his promises, even though they did everything possible to get in the way. And even though Laban was deceiving, and even though things were working out in such an ugly way, God still worked it all out. But I have to tell you something. In the story of Joseph, Joseph is Jacob's favorite son who he gives the coat of many colors, right? And his brothers become jealous and they decide they're going to kill him. Where do you think that came from? The jealousy, the retribution the acting against one another, the being rivals. I mean, it's all over this story. It's all over it. So we really shouldn't be surprised when Joseph's brothers want to kill him. This is the life that they know. And it's only Reuben, the oldest one, born before all of this conflict was so out in the open that acts on Joseph's behalf. So what do we take from this chaotic story? Well, I think we begin to see the relationship between struggle and blessing. We don't associate those two things. In fact, a lot of times we think blessing is the absence of struggle, don't we? But we see in this story that struggle and blessing are like this. They are hand in hand. And we have to remember that God designed this life of struggle for Jacob. We saw it with the brothers in the womb, that blessing came to the younger, not the older. We saw it in Jacob's dealings with Esau, that blessing came through deceit and struggle. We saw it now in the birth stories. Blessing comes through struggle and contest. And look, I don't like the struggle but I've accepted the struggle. But it took years and a mental breakdown for that to happen. I, just totally straight with you. And yet, we see time and time again in the story that is often through the struggle that God ends up achieving what he wants to have happen. So isn't it interesting, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this, so don't misunderstand me, We spend so much time trying to align ourselves with God, which we need to do, with the expectation that when we align ourselves with God and we are in his will and doing his will, that, you know, birds will start looping around our head and things will become successful and forest animals will speak to us. I don't know why I have Disney princesses in my head right now, but apparently I do. We have, a different, we have a different concept, and it's challenging for us, I think, to see God's will being done and him being an active part of chaos and struggle and hurt. But it's there. And then it made me wonder, well, what story do we have in the Bible where everything works out for someone because they are following God? When you find it, We have potentially one example, and that's it. And we don't know anything about him except that he served God, God loved him, and he took him home. That is all we know. We are reminded of the struggle that Jesus had to go through. Jesus who was the most aligned with God as anyone could be. Jesus who faced opposition at every turn. Jesus who was killed by those who opposed him. And the question that I have coming from this is, is this kind of struggle necessary for us to become who God wants us to be? And the answer that keeps coming up is yeah, at the very least, probably, maybe most likely, maybe it sure seems that way. However we want to say it, it sure seems like struggle is a big part of blessing. And therefore, the hard part about it is maybe not the struggle as much as it is trusting God, when things around us are not going well. And that's what makes this story as awful as it is, encouraging. God worked through broken people who were disillusioned with life, family, and love. And God was still Able to take these people who actively worked against one another, he was able to work through them. And it sure doesn't look like what we expect it to, but it happens anyway. Because you know what? Whatever is happening or whatever course you are on, God is still God. And whether it looks like what we want it to look like or it seems out of control, God is still God. Because God is not just the God of happy endings. He is the God of everything in between the first breath of life and the last And that, my friends, is good news, isn't it?